From the New Media Project at the NYU School of Medicine, I'm Josh Young, and this is As Seen From Here. On today's program, a New Year's uveitis blowout. Uveitis seen in children, or at least uveitis that gets referred to me, seems to be so uh, extraordinary in its vision-robbing capacity. There have been similar studies which have reported the outcomes of treatment with this combination of treatment, but none of them have been randomized clinical trials. This is the first randomized clinical trial which compares these two treatments. First this. The Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education requires a financial interest disclosure before any CME activity. Dr. Foster and Dr. Yazdani declare no real or apparent conflicts of interest. You can participate in As Seen From Here by calling our listener response lines. You can ask questions of our guests or discuss the topics yourself. Listeners in the United States dial area code 646-808-0231. Listeners in the United Kingdom dial 020-7558-8275. Messages left on the system may be included in future episodes of As Seen From Here. The listener response lines are in beta testing. You're supposed to hear a nice greeting welcoming you to the show. But for now, all that you'll hear is this. The person you're trying to reach is not available. Please leave a message after the beep. Go ahead and leave your message anyway. We'll still get it. All messages left on the system become the property of As Seen From Here. The full text of the release is available on asseenfromhere.com forward slash legal. Again, those numbers in the United States are area code 646-808-0231 and in the United Kingdom, 020-7558-8275. Be a part of the podcast. I'll repeat the numbers again at the end of the show. Today, we hear from one of the preeminent uveitis specialists in the world, C. Stephen Foster. Dr. Foster recently published results of a large study examining uveitis in children. Later, we'll hear from Dr. Shaheen Yazdani, who, with Masood Sohelian, have just published results of a study examining an alternative to conventional therapy for ocular toxoplasmosis. But first, let's hear from Dr. Foster. The work that we've done in the past on pediatric uveitis uh, has been done in an effort to try to get a sense of why uveitis seen in children, or at least uveitis that gets referred to me occurring in children, seems to be so uh, extraordinary in its vision-robbing capacity. I mean, so often uh, we would see children who had bilateral uveitis that had been chronic. It had already resulted in development of cataract, and the doctors had done cataract surgery. It had already developed, um, resulted in the development of glaucoma. And glaucoma surgery had been required because it wasn't being controlled adequately with medication. It had already resulted in damage to uh, retina and or optic nerve. And in some cases, actually far too many cases, the children are already irrevocably blind, at least from a legal standpoint. They were visually handicapped to the level of being declared legally blind and nothing could be done. I mean, never mind immunomodulatory therapy or steroids or anything else. It was too late. And so we wondered, why was it 
that this seemed to be such a bad problem in children. And we discovered that, at least we think we discovered, that it was because the uveitis didn't seem that bad to the doctors taking care of the patient, and the doctors continued to take care of the patients without referring them to a uveitis specialist or uh, personally advancing them up the so-called therapeutic stepladder in aggressiveness to therapy because it didn't look so bad today or tomorrow or next week or next month. The problem was that it was seductive. Next month and next year even, well, it didn't look that bad. And the child had only dropped from 2030 down to 2050. That's not really that bad. And so on and on with the steroids. I mean, I think it's probably was sort of like for them, hearing um, a low-grade buzzing noise, eventually that just gets drowned out. I mean, you tune that out, that's just not that bad a deal. Until four or five or six years later, and lo and behold, the child has cystic rather than a cystoid macular edema or glaucomatous optic neuropathy, and uh, they're ruined. And they're ruined for the rest of their life. You know, the kid might have another 70 years, 75 years to live, and they're ruined. This paper describes the findings of 269 pediatrics patients, meaning age 16 and younger, out of 1,242 total uveitis patients. So the the percentage of the uveitis patients who fell into this age group was was about 22.5-ish. What I'm curious about, Steve is whether this this percentage is representative uh, of what of what other papers have shown whether it's whether it's representative of the 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 pediatric slice of the total uveitis uh, uh picture well it might be a little high and it might be because of selective bias people being referred to me these last few months have seen the, the publication of the two largest pediatric uveitis studies ever, yours and David Ben Ezra's. And they're very, very similar studies in terms of population, and they're very similar studies in terms of the sorts of parameters that, that, you, that you looked at. One of the differences between the papers is, is that his, which looked at patients 18 and younger, granted the demographic is a little bit different, found that, um, I don't have the numbers here, but found that something like one-third of the total cases were pediatrics cases, you know. I speak to this matter in my textbook on uveitis and emphasize that I think the phrase that I use is that while children age 16 or less represent only approximately 10% of the total uveitis universe. They account for greater than 30% of the blindness seen in the uveitic population. This is an especially pernicious and vicious sneak thief of vision in the child population, the pediatric population. And I think that part of the reason for that is the doctors see it as not being that big of a deal until it's too late. And maybe they see it as being not that, not that big of a deal because it's not explosive. It's not cataclysmic. It doesn't come on them like B27-associated uveitis does with a hypopian and terrible pain and redness and photophobia. I mean, the children are often, frankly, asymptomatic. 
in the paper, about one third of the patients you uh, saw had yes. JIA. The the overwhelming percentage of of those patients were were certainly girls. But overall, yes. for the the pediatric population from from this very large paper, it was a fairly even split between boy, boys and girls. And in fact, when we look at the at the intermediate uveitis, that's predominantly boys. And and I'm curious why why that is. We don't know, but uh, the JIA story, of course, is obvious. But in terms of why one would find more boys than girls with intermediate uveitis, I just don't know. I mean, the diagnosable causes underlying diagnosable causes of intermediate uveitis uh, with sarcoid and multiple sclerosis and Lyme disease uh, and cat scratch disease and syphilis, uh, none of those uh, are um, favoring uh, males in their involvement. So why should more males than females end up with idiopathic intermediate uveitis? I just don't know. Steve, for, for the purposes of the paper, and, and I guess for, for papers generally, how do you separate the anterior from the intermediate uveitis? And the reason that, that I ask is, once more, to look back at David Benezra's paper, the number of patients who he had with anterior uveitis was very, very small. And the number that he had with intermediate was very high. And the, the reason is, is that, that he had a very strict definition for anterior uveitis, that if there were more than 10 cells in the vitreous, that he didn't call it anterior uveitis. So that if, you know, there was, and obviously an anterior case that spilled over more than, more than 10 cells, that didn't get categorized uh, as an anterior uveitis. So I, I just... While we talk, so that I, I can know what, what your definition is for that boundary. I generally imagine that a spillover phenomenon, a so-called spillover phenomenon, can occur, but I'm always skeptical if it is with significant cell in the vitreous. I'm always skeptical that maybe this is an iridocyclitis rather than an iritis. I'm skeptical that maybe the ciliary body is involved in this process and there are cells coming from there and not just from the iris vasculature. Now, some people consider, I mean, there are all, all sorts of different classifications by location of uveitides. And some people consider iridocyclitis as an intermediate form of uveitis. That is to say, Fuchs heterochromic erythrocyclitis is an intermediate uveitis. Others don't. Others keep that lumped into the anterior uveitis collection of cases. Now, Steve, three-quarters of these children had bilateral uveitis, uh, and Ben, ben Ezra's paper, too, showed that, that a very, very high number did. And I'm, I'm wondering whether this is something that's particularly characteristic of pediatric uveitis or whether this is just something that's characteristic of the sort of pediatric uveitis patients who get, who get sent to you? I think it's, uh, to a very large extent, disease-related. Uh, you figure if you look at the adult population with HLA-B27-associated uveitis, I mean, the vast bulk of those, 80% or more, are going to be bilateral, usually not simultaneous, but uh, alternating bilateral one can sort of liken that 
to a systemic disorder uh, with associated uveitis, just like one can consider the child, the juvenile idiopathic arthritis, or old, in the old nomenclature, juvenile rheumatoid arthritis. The same with sarcoid. I mean, those problems tend to be bilateral. The person who has strictly unilateral for years, for several years, multiple recurrences, strictly unilateral recurrent anterior uveitis is the one that I've become suspicious of. I began to ask myself, have, have I missed a, uh, a foreign body? Have I missed some translumination defects that would strongly suggest this is a recurrent herpes problem? So I think bilaterality is the rule, and primarily because uh, we're mostly seeing patients with some systemic risk factor, even if it is just a particular risk gene. Steve, what are some of the complications that you see in the pediatric uveitis population? Oh, it runs all the way from the front to the back, Josh, and beginning, of course, with band keratopathy. Uh, I'm fascinated by that. I mean, have you ever thought about why is it that it's only people who have uveitis beginning in childhood who deposit calcium at Bowman's membrane? Have you ever seen a person who had onset of uveitis as an adult develop band keratopathy? I never have. The development of Senechii is very common. As a matter of fact, it is used by some as a prognostic marker. Wolf and his group from Michigan years ago emphasized this, that in their JIA population, and they talked about a number of risk factors in terms of how the case turned out, prognostically, how was it likely to, to end. And one of the big ones was the presence or not of posterior sneakia at the moment of the first evaluation. And then cataract, which may come from the inflammation, but more often comes from the imprudent uh, too, much too prolonged use of topical steroids. Uh, hypotony may occur because of damage to the ciliary epithelium or uh, formation of a cyclitic membrane. Uh, and then, of course, um, the problems in the back. Um, vitritis or, or pathology in a vitreous may occur, of course, snowballs and the like in the patient with intermediate uveitis, but in fact, that pathology. Uh, only in the most extreme cases does it um, actually affect vision. The the vision damage, the robbing of vision that occurs, most often occurs because of retinal damage. Uh, optic neuropathy, too, from inflammation and glaucoma, but especially uh, macular damage. And the most common by far is the development of macular edema. And it may be diffuse at first and then eventually develop cystic-like changes or cystoid uh, macular edema, which at that point is reversible, although the patient may be left with an epiretinal membrane uh, even after they've been totally controlled and the macular edema is chased away. Uh, still, cystoid macular edema is generally reversible, uh, but never, ever, ever, unless the inflammation has been totally squashed and controlled uh, long-term. So long as inflammation exists, there's no hope at all of uh, permanently reducing and reversing macular edema. But then if uh, the cystoid is allowed to persist for uh, long enough, it becomes cystic and the cysts are not reversible. Once it's cystic macular edema, it's permanent and then of course the cysts will often rupture and produce a macular hole. So that's sort of the gamut of it. There are more rare or exotic things too, like retinal vasculitis 
uh, subretinal granulomas or subretinal neovascular membranes, but those are the main ones that I've already mentioned. To what extent are the complications that that we see secondary to the pathology, uh, and to to what extent are are complications secondary to chronic use of steroids? It's difficult to parse it out, sort it out, and lay the blame on one doorstep or another. But I don't think that any, I really have no problem at all making this uh, statement quite definitively. I don't think any correctly trained true uveitis expert on the planet would ever hold to the idea that imprudent use of steroids are not a major culprit in production of pathology. It's huge. Are you more eager to uh, move children off of steroids uh, than, than you would be for, um, for an adult with uh, chronic uveitis? You bet. Did complication rate uh, vary with the etiology of uveitis? Say, did the JIA patients have a higher complication rate than the idiopathic uveitis patients? They do. They do, both in terms of cataract and glaucoma and band keratopathy and retinopathy. Since you found that visual outcome for these patients correlated with the amount of time between diagnosis and uh, seeing the tertiary care specialist, sh- should all pediatrics patient or should all pediatric uveitis patients be automatically sent to a tertiary care center like yours? No, I don't think so. But um, I think that the uh, patients on the part of the doctor for pulling that trigger for referral should be much shorter than with an adult because the the reserve that the kid has for preservation of vision is considerably less. I mean, history, you know, history can be a very powerful teacher if you let her. And the literature is absolutely chock full of this story from multiple different centers, from the Baskin Palmer, to McGill in Canada, to the group in London, uh, our group, multiple groups have published on this matter, and it's just a kind of a sickening, monotonous story that gets repeated time and time again, and it needs to stop. And the only way it's ever going to stop is for um, comprehensive ophthalmologists who have a child with uveitis make that referral to the uveitis specialist a lot earlier in the game. Don't hold on to that case for a year. If it's still a problem in three months, refer the patient. Steve Foster, thank you very much. It's been nice talking to you. C. Stephen Foster is founder and president of the Ocular Immunology and Uveitis Foundation at the Massachusetts Eye Research and Surgery Institute and clinical professor of ophthalmology at Harvard Medical School. His paper, Analysis of Pediatric Uveitis Cases at a Tertiary Referral Center, appears in the July 2005 issue of Ophthalmology. Ocular toxoplasmosis can cause severe ocular inflammation. Even after resolution of the inflammation, the patient may be left with permanent visual deficits caused by macular scarring. Shaheen Yazdani and Masood Sohelian describe results of an alternative to conventional therapy for ocular toxoplasmosis. Dr. Yazdani spoke to me from his office in Tehran. The sound quality is not as good as listeners to this podcast have come to expect, 
but the information Dr. Yazdani has for us more than compensates for the sound. Let me ask you, Dr. Yazdani, what is the goal of therapy for ocular toxoplasmosis? The goal of therapy in ocular toxoplasmosis is to uh, inhibit the proliferation of the parasite and to avoid further damage, further irreversible damage to the retina and the optic nerve, and also to reduce the inflammation. Are there circumstances in which we may choose not to treat patients? There are certain certain, uh, circumstances, yes. Um, If there is a small lesion in the the periphery of the retina and the vision is uh, acceptable, there is no severe inflammation, you can just follow, observe the patient. Can you outline what the conventional therapy is for ocular toxoplasmosis? The most accepted and routine uh, classic treatment for ocular toxo uh, is a combination of sulfadiazine and pyrimethamine and together with oral steroids and a supplement of uh, folinic acid. The duration is at least six weeks. Uh, the most commonly accepted duration of treatment is six weeks. Uh, of course, uh, the, the oral steroid is not initiated during the first 48 or 72 hours. It is started on the third day usually. But the other three medications are started from the first day. And there's a loading dose for sulfadiazine, which is either 2 grams or 4 grams as a, as a loading dose. Uh, and uh, a QID dose of uh, 500 milligrams or one gram. It depends. It varies on. It depends on the opinion of the physician. And what are the disadvantages of current therapy? The disadvantage. The first uh, main disadvantage is that it's not always available. Uh, there are certain circumstances, in certain areas, or at certain uh, time periods, uh, these medications may not be available. Uh, the second uh, disadvantage is uh, relatively high cost, and uh, one major disadvantage is also the large number of tablets which the patient has to take. Uh, with, a, with a high dose regimen, the patient will have to take up to about 10 or 12 tablets each day, and, uh, well, compliance uh, will be reduced this way. Are there laboratory studies that have to be followed with patients on conventional therapy too? Yes, of course. Yes, of course. Because because of the toxicity of uh, pyrimethamine, you have to take a routine laboratory tests every week, complete blood counts and platelet counts. Are your treatment plans altered if the patient is, let's say, pregnant? Surely, because these medications are contraindicated in pregnancy. Uh, if there is a pregnant patient with ocular toxoplasmosis who requires treatment, uh, we would probably go for either um, ceramycin or an intravitreal injection of clindamycin. Is there evidence prior to your current study that trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole might be effective in the treatment of ocular toxoplasmosis? Although there were not any uh, exactly similar studies performed previously, but there have been both in vitro and in vivo studies which uh, confirm uh, the effectiveness of this combination of uh, treatment for ocular toxo, for ocular toxo and also for CNS toxoplasmosis in uh, HIV patients. Uh, and uh, there's also been a recent study which shows that uh, this combination of three methoprim and sulfamethoxazole 
is effective in preventing recurrence of ocular toxin. And uh, the, the, the pharmacology and the basically the way these, uh, com this combination works is very similar to the uh, combination of uh, pyrimethamine and sulfadiazine. Can I have you describe the design of this study? Uh, patients with uh, these indications, I mean, patients were only included if they had uh, a lesion uh, in, uh, within uh, adjacent to the fovea, within 500 to 3,000 microns away from the fovea, but not within not within the center of the fovea, not within the 500 central 500 microns, and uh, no further than the aura, the nasal aura. Patients were excluded if there was a lesion in uh, zone two or three, but if the if, if the lesion was large, uh, more than two disc diameters, with vitreous inflammation, they were also included. So to make it simple, either any lesion uh, in zone one, which is uh, from 500 to 3,000 microns, lesions in zones in other, in uh, more peripheral zones. Only if they were large and with significant vitreous inflammation. And how many patients were included in the study? There were approximately 30 patients in each study group, in the conventional treatment group, classic treatment group, and in the cotrimoxazole group. And what were your treatment protocols for the for the two groups? The patients were treated for six weeks. Um, we use a rather lower dose of uh, classic treatment. I mean, uh, we only use uh, 25 milligrams of pyrimethamine and 2 grams of sulfadiazine uh, daily in the classic treatment group. Of course, combined with oral steroids and folinic acid, 5 milligrams per day. And what was your treatment protocol for the trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole group? Uh, in that group, we use uh, full adult doses, of, uh, which is uh, two tablets every 12 hours. That makes it four tablets per day. And each tablet consists of uh, 80 milligrams of trimethoprim and 400 milligrams of sulfamethoxazole. And the duration of the, of the treatment was the same for both groups? Exactly the same. They were treated for the same period. That is six weeks. How did you, for the purposes of the study, define what a successful treatment outcome was? A successful treatment outcome was considered when um, there was um, decreased activity of the lesion in terms of uh, ophthalmoscopically, in terms of uh, ophthalmoscopy, uh, reduction of the size and uh, decrease, decreasing in the fuzziness of the border of the lesion decreased vitreous inflammation, and improvement of vision. So if a patient had better vision, less vitreous inflammation, and a border, and a sharper border of the lesion, especially if the sharpening of the border of the lesion was accompanied by reduction in the size of it, was considered as a successful treatment. And what was the duration of the study period? The treatment period, as I said, was six weeks, but the duration of follow-up was uh, rather long. It was about uh, two years. It took about two years. The whole study took about two years. And can I have you describe your results from the study? 
the results in this in this study were very very uh, close. In fact, uh, they were almost the same. We had a very good uh, randomization schedule, and the patients were randomly allocated in the two groups. The two groups were similar in terms of age, sex, duration of uh, treatment, and initial visual acuity. All baseline factors were similar. Uh, also, follow-up was also similar. They were there was 33 weeks of follow months of follow-up in the treatment group and the classic treatment group, and 31 months uh, in the three methylene sulfamethoxazole treatment group. And in terms of the results, uh, visual improvement was the same, almost the same. Uh, reduction in uh, the size of the lesion, which was another primary outcome measure, was uh, almost the same. There was a very, very small intergroup difference, about 2% difference in the reduction. And uh, I would like to mention here that uh, our study was powered to be able to detect a difference of uh, 20% in a reduction in lesion size, which we considered as uh, clinically significant. I mean that um, if there was more than 20% difference in the reduction in lesion size between the two groups, our study could detect it, which we thought that this was an adequate level of difference between the two groups in, term, in clinical terms. Uh, and uh, the difference between the two groups was almost 2%. I mean, uh, there was only 2% difference in terms of reduction of lesion size. How do these data compare with those of other studies? There have been similar studies which have reported the outcomes of treatment with this, com this combination of treatment, but none of them have been randomized clinical trials. This is the first randomized clinical trial which uh, compares these two treatment protocols. And, um, well, it's difficult to compare the outcomes of this study with other studies especially that uh, we used a full dose of 3-methoprene sulfamethoxazole, which was uh, the four tablets daily of six weeks, and we chose uh, the lower dose, the lower accepted dose for the classic treatment, which is 25 milligrams of pyrimethamine after the initial dose, the loading dose, and uh, two grams per day of sulfadiazine. Our results really indicate that uh, these two treatment uh, strategies are almost similar in terms of uh, the, the, the outcomes which we consider. Uh, previous studies have also confirmed that uh, this combination of free metaprene sulfamethoxazole is effective in ocular toxo, but none of them can, can be conclusive because none of them have been randomized clinical trial. What are you currently doing? in your own practice now? In our practice, uh, what we really actually do is that we treat all patients with this uh, new regimen of pre-methoprene sulfamethoxazole. I mean that even if a patient has a lesion, an active lesion in the central fovea, even in the 500 microns which uh, I talked about in the, earlier in the interview, even with central fovea lesion, we go for this treatment. But uh, the reason that we uh, decided to exclude central foveal lesions in this study was because that we were still not absolutely sure that um, these two treatments would be similar. So now that the outcome is almost similar, uh, we can there is no need to be to worry about central foveal lesions. So any patient with any lesion will 
receive uh, the more available, less expensive, and less toxic uh, treatment. Is toxoplasma common in Tehran? It, yes, it is very common. In a, pre, uh, in a previous report from our center, which also was published by Dr. Sohei Leon, uh, over 50% of posterior uh, uveitis is due to ocular toxin. Of course, our center, sorry, our center is a referral center, but um, anyway, it is uh, here in our practice, it is the most common cause of bacteria uveitis. Dr. Yazdani, let me thank you ver- very much. Um, merci. Uh, <laughs> thank you very much. <laughs> Shaheen Yazdani is Assistant Professor of Ophthalmology at the Laba Finijan Medical Center in Tehran, Iran. His paper, Prospective Randomized Trial of Trimethoprin Sulfamethoxazole versus pyrimethamine and sulfadiazine in the treatment of ocular toxoplasmosis appears in the November 2005 issue of Ophthalmology. Ask questions of Dr. Foster or Dr. Yazdani or any of our previous guests, or make a comment about any of the topics we've discussed. These interviews are meant to be the start of a conversation in which you participate. Call our listener response lines in the United States dial area code 646-808-0231. In the United Kingdom dial 020-7558-8275 or Skype JYoungMD. Those numbers can be found on our website as seenfromhere.com. Be a part of the next podcast. I'm Josh Young.